This is Roger Penske, and you're listening to Pit Pass Indy, sponsored by Penske Truck Rental. IndyCar fans, it's time to start your engines. Welcome to Pit Pass Indy, a production of Evergreen Podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Martin, a journalist who regularly covers the NTT IndyCar series. Our goal at Pit Pass Indy is to give racing fans an insider's view of the exciting world of the NTT IndyCar series in a fast-paced podcast featuring interviews with the biggest names in the sport. I bring nearly 40 years of experience covering IndyCar and NASCAR, working for such media brands as NBCSports.com, SI.com, ESPN Sports Ticker, Sports Illustrated, Auto Week, and Speed Sport. So let's drop the green flag on this episode of Pit Pass Indy. Welcome to this week's edition of Pit Pass Indy. As we begin our fourth season of giving IndyCar fans a behind-the-scenes look at the NTT IndyCar Series and the drivers that compete in the Indianapolis 500. As we move into 2024, this episode will focus on two great racers who passed away in the final days of 2023. Two-time kart champion and 2003 Indianapolis 500 winner Gilles DeFerrin died from a massive heart attack on Friday, December 29th at the age of 56. Two days later, on December 31st, one of the true legends of NASCAR stock car racing, Cale Yarbrough, died. He was 84. Although Yarbrough was a NASCAR legend and a three-time NASCAR Cup Series champion and four-time Daytona 500 winner, he was also a four-time starter in the Indianapolis 500. His 83 NASCAR Cup Series victories are tied for sixth on the all-time list. We will honor both great men on today's Pit Pass Indy. First, we honor one of racing's greatest gentlemen, Gilles DeFerrin. The 56-year-old DeFerrin was victim of a cardiac arrest between 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time Friday, December 29th, while driving a car at the Concours Club, a private track located in Opelika, Florida, 25 minutes from downtown Miami. According to his son Luke, DeFerrin stopped at the entrance of the pit area because he was not feeling well. Because there was not a crash, it took safety vehicles some time to get to DeFerrin's car. Oz Negri, DeFerrin's friend and longtime sports car driver, was also at the scene. DeFerrin was one of the most competitive and classiest drivers of his era. The Brazilian led a very interesting life. He was born in Paris, France, but moved to Brazil when he was four. As a youth, he was a foreign exchange student in Wisconsin, where his daily chores included milking cows on a dairy farm while in high school. His racing career began in karting as a teenager. He competed in Europe and won the 1992 English Formula 3 title. By 1995, DeFerrin had made it to kart, driving for the legendary Jim Hall in the famed Yellow Pennzoil car. In his first attempt at the Indianapolis 500, DeFerrin started 19th in the Mercedes Reynard, but was one of many cars involved in the horrific Stan Fox crash in turn one at the start of the race. DeFerrin was credited with a 29th place finish out of 33 cars. Most of the kart teams boycotted the Indianapolis 500 over the creation of the rival Indy Racing League in 1996 
And that was the last Indy 500 DeFerrin competed in until 2001. DeFerrin drove for Jim Hall from 1995 to 96 before moving to Walker Racing in 1997. He remained with Walker Racing until team owner Roger Penske and then newly hired Team Penske president Tim Sendrick tabbed DeFerrin to help revitalize their struggling race team at the end of the 1999 season. DeFerrin was set to be teammates with Greg Moore on a powerful two-car Team Penske effort beginning in 2000, but Moore was killed in a crash in turn two at California Speedway in the final kart race of the season on October 31st, 1999. Moore's ride went to Elio Castroneves, a fellow Brazilian. Together, DeFerrin and Castroneves were a dynamic duo. DeFerrin won the kart championship in 2000 and 2001. Castroneves won the Indianapolis 500 in 2001 and 2002, the first two of his record-tying four Indy 500 victories. In 2002, Team Penske left kart to join the Indy Racing League full-time. In 2003, DeFerrin drove to victory in the Indianapolis 500, narrowly defeating Castroneves, who was attempting to become the first driver in history to win three straight Indy 500s. DeFerrin had finished second to Castroneves in Indy in 2001, the first time in Team Penske history that it had finished 1-2 at the Indianapolis 500. DeFerrin's victory at Nazareth Speedway in 2003 was the 100th IndyCar win for Team Penske. DeFerrin retired from IndyCar racing at the end of that season with seven wins in kart and five in the Indy Racing League for a total of 12 IndyCar wins. DeFerrin joined the Bar Honda Formula One team as sporting director in 2005, remaining in that role until 2007. Then DeFerrin returned to the cockpit in 2008 in a factory-backed Acura LMP2 prototype in the American Le Mans series as the owner-driver of his team, DeFerrin Motorsports, sharing the wheel with future IndyCar Series champion and Indianapolis 500 winner Simon Pagano. The team climbed to the premier LMP1 prototype class as an Acura factory team in 2009 with five victories and seven poles en route to a runner-up finish in the standings. DeFerrin retired as a driver after the 2009 season and co-owned DeFerrin Dragon Racing in the IndyCar series through 2011. During that time, DeFerrin also served as a team owner's representative on the iconic committee that evaluated designs for the next generation of IndyCar chassis, with his immense technical and managerial acumen adding greatly to the process. In 2000, at California Speedway, DeFerrin set the closed-course land speed record during kart qualifying with a lap of 241.428 miles per hour, a mark that stands today. DeFerrin is survived by his wife, Angela, daughter, Anna, and son, Luke. Anna has become a DJ at Formula One races around the world. For as good as he was on the racetrack, DeFerrin was even better out of the race car. He was polite, articulate, and well-versed. He made everyone he spoke to feel important and always looked you in the eye when he spoke to you. Behind the wheel of a race car, however, DeFerrin was as fierce as they came. To four-time Indianapolis 500 winner Elio Castroneves, DeFerrin was more than his teammate for four seasons at Team Penske from 2000 to 2003. 
Castroneva sent me the following message the day after the Farron's death. Quote, in motorsports, it's like a big family. We have everything and all kinds of situations, Castroneva said. The drivers in this case are fierce competitors pushing each other to the limit. But in the end, everyone shares this passion for motorsports, and you end up making friends and acquaintances in this environment. In my case with Gilles, I not only became friends on the track, but gained a brother off it as well. I learned a lot from him and his family about finding balance in this profession. It's very difficult to talk about him not being here with us anymore, but my faith tells me that it was his final moment, his last acceleration, his last break, and ultimately his last lap of his life. And now the most important thing is for us to embrace each other and enjoy every second of our lives as if it were the last lap. John Boslog is special projects manager at Team Penske and was a team member on DeFerrin's car at Team Penske when DeFerrin was racking up his two kart championships in his 2003 Indianapolis 500 victory. Boslog is our guest on this week's Pit Pass Indy as he pays his respects to DeFerrin in this exclusive interview. We continue to remember the life of the great Jill DeFerrin, and joining us now is John Boslog, Special Projects Manager at Team Penske. John spent a lot of time working as a member of Jill DeFerrin's crew, especially during the glory days of 2000 and 2003 when DeFerrin won back-to-back cart championships in 2000 and 2001 in the Indianapolis 500 victory in 2003. John, like a lot of us, I'm sure you were really shocked when you heard the news that Gilles DeFerrin had passed away at the age of 56. What goes through your mind right now? Uh, yeah, obviously a lot of sadness, you know. I mean, he was such a great spark plug for our team, um, the, the ultimate professional, you know. And he came into the team, you know, at a time where we, we were coming off some hard years, you know. And uh, he just he was really a, uh, when he and Elio both, you know, he was like the big brother to Elio, you know, but, um, you know, he, he had his challenges before he got to us, but you know, his, he's just, he was so respectful of everybody on the team. Um, you know, that as well as the guys on track, I mean, he, he raced everybody very, you know, with a lot of respect. I think a lot of people had a lot of respect for him. Um, he, he had, a. we have some quotes in our, in our fitness center at the shop of, of various people, you know, Roger, Rick Mears, um, Julius, who was Roger's father and also DeFerrin, who always was very respectful of those that came before him and how he loved to tell everybody how proud he was to put his suit on every day, you know, and drive for, drive for Roger. So. You know, that, that really helped everybody, you know, get behind him. And he always had the utmost respect for the team and everybody within it. He also had the utmost respect for just people he came in contact with. He was probably the most polite individual in the sport that I've ever met. He had a lot of respect for everybody. Very erudite, very articulate 
those were qualities that maybe we weren't used to seeing in IndyCar or in auto racing in general. What made him so unique? Well, he was. He was very. He was very respectful to everybody. It didn't matter who you were. Um, you know, he'd come in in the morning and shake everybody's hand. You know, whether you were new or there thirty years, he he treated everybody that way. And um, you know, he he could have fun too. He had a great sense of humor. Um, when he and Elio would get together, all oh, the stories between those two messing around, you know, in the trucks with each other. And, but when it came time to put the helmet on, he was, he was all business and he, you know, he delivered all the time. He didn't start off with team Penske. He started off with Jim Hall in 1995. Uh, that was a year where. Team Penske did not make the field for the Indianapolis 500, and probably one of the most shocking storylines in Indy 500 history. But what do you remember about the rookie Gilles DeFerrin during that 95 cart season when he was driving Jim Hall's Pennzoil-sponsored yellow Indy car that some had always referred to as the Yellow Submarine? Yeah, well, he was, you know, he he was one of the ones, uh, we were in the tire war at that time, and I think what caught everybody's attention is just how he, he, he probably had every excuse to give up, but he never did. He was always, you know, trying. Um, he, you could just tell that he was, he was in it. He had something to prove. He, and that was his character, right? He would just, he wouldn't give up and he wanted to give the best to Paul VDS, which he did. And then when he came to us in, in 2000, he, he let it unload on everybody. You know, he had, he had a lot of, a lot of pent up uh, success that he, he felt, you know, he could, you know, help. So, um, yeah, that, and that translated into two backpack championships. And between the time he was with Jim Hall and the time he joined team Penske at the end of the 1999 season, he spent a couple of years with Derek Walker at Walker racing. And I know that was another situation where he may not have had the best equipment, but he was always out there fighting. And what do you recall about Jill during those years? Because at Hall uh, VDS and with Derek Walker, he won three races over five seasons before he ever arrived at Team Penske. Yeah, and I think that's that's what speaks loudly there is that he won he won those races, you know, in I won't say bad equipment, but he was just you know he just he was new to the, he was new to it. Right. And, you know, he, um, you could just, you could just tell that he had, and, and Roger spotted it a mile away better than any of us that he, there was something about him, how he carried himself outside the car, how he raced people on track. Um, you know, that, I think that's what, that, that really gained him so much respect. Uh, and you know, and friends throughout the year, you know, the series from '97 until '99 are probably three of the most down years in Team Penske's glorious history. It became apparent to team owner Roger Penske that they needed to rejuvenate the operation, bring him back in the prominence. He hired Tim Sendrick to be the president of Team Penske, and then you guys zeroed in and hired Jill DeFerrin and also Greg Moore to be the drivers beginning in 2000. Those were key pieces that were put together in order to bring Team Penske back to the glory days that it enjoys today? Roger's always looking ahead. You know, Roger was not happy where we were and would do, you know, 
what he needed to to get us get us back on track. And you know that combination of uh, you know Tim Cindric and and the the package, you know the Reynard, the the Honda, um, you know, and then with you know Penske cars being able to help develop the car was you know that was that was key to the the whole thing. You know, and it all just started to fall into place. But we never got a real chance to see what that combination would have been able to accomplish because on October 31st, 1999, Greg Moore, who was going to join your team in 2000, was killed in turn two at California Speedway in the final race of the season that year. Within hours, the team had hired Elio Castroneves, and then it really seemed like the combination of Gilles DeFerrin and Elio Castroneves is what really sent Team Penske back on its way. What was it like, the dynamic between those two, when you guys discovered we have something really special here? Well, they <laughs> they fed off of each other so much. And, you know, I think they they would support each other like it was it was amazing, really. You know, and, and you know, Elio, he's as as you just say, all you got to do is say Elio and everybody pretty much knows, you know, how he is. And, um and with Jill, you know, they had a lot of fun together and it, it, it really bled over into the team. And once, once, it, once we started to see their personalities, uh, you know, unfold and, and the way they got together and got along, it, it just, it just made for a really good, you know, refreshing sort of restart you might say, you know, a lot of fun to be a part of. They were both Brazilian, but in a lot of ways, they couldn't have been more dissimilar in the way that they came up. Jill was born in Paris. He spent time in Wisconsin as a foreign exchange student when he was a teenager. Very well-versed, very well-spoken. Elio was a little bit different. Elio basically had to scrap for a lot of his early days in karting. Didn't master the English language that well, but he always had that flair for the dramatic, the flair for finding the spotlight, whereas Gilles pretty much just let his racing do his talking for him. How dissimilar were they in their personalities, but yet those two personalities, as you said, really fed off each other? Yeah, I mean, Gilles was more engineering-minded, you know, he, he, he really, he approached it very methodical, you know, the days and it probably drove his engineers crazy at some time. Um, and Elio was equally talented, but he just, he, he was just so happy to be, you know, Elio loves life and he, his, he didn't care. I mean, he, it's hard to explain because they, they were very similar in terms of, you know, competition. Um, but you know, Jill was more, I think he, he, he was more of a professor uh, and you know what I mean? I think he, he approached it more from an analytical standpoint. Um, Elio, you know, let his, he would let his, um, natural talent take over and, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't, it's hard to say really. I mean, they they were a lot of fun to be around, that's all I can say. <laughs> so in 2000 and 2001, Jill won back-to-back kart championships. And if you look at the statistics of both seasons, they were, those were 20 race seasons both years. 
Two victories each season, seven podiums, five poles in 2000. The next year, two victories, eight podiums, four poles in 2001. It was a real accomplishment to win one kart championship back then, but he did it back-to-back. So how big of a deal was that for him to make, to be a back-to-back kart champion back then? Well, again, after the, you know, the previous few years leading up to that, it was, it was obviously very rewarding. Um, you know, he had a great team of people behind him, obviously, you know, his chief, Matt Johnson and his engineer, uh, Tom German, Chris Gantner, you know, these guys were, you know, they just clicked very well. And, and I think Jill was a patient guy, you know, when it came to racing. So I think he, he was getting the most out of it. He learned, I think he probably learned a lot in his, in the earlier days, you know, for him. Um, yeah, I just think that helped him. You know, he was, I think his, his methodology or whatever you want to say really helped him with those championships. We'll be right back to Pit Pass Indy after this short break. In the world of racing, Penske means performance and winning. For good reason. Since 1966, Team Penske has won 44 national championships, 17 in IndyCar alone. And last year, Team Penske claimed its Indianapolis 500 record-extending 19th Indy 500 win with Joseph Newgarden, the latest driver, to win the famed race. Team Penske also won its second straight NASCAR Cup Series championship. In 2022, Penske was the first team in history to win both the IndyCar and the NASCAR Cup Series championships in the same season. Team Penske enters the 2024 NTT IndyCar Series season with 236 IndyCar wins, including 34 500-mile race victories. Those are results that are tough to top. But Penske's legendary reputation for quality and attention to detail makes a statement off the track, too. When you need a truck, whether for your business or for a household move, Penske Truck Rental has some of the cleanest, newest, and best-maintained vehicles on the road. And we make it easy with personalized support from our associates, flexible reservations, and access to the top technology. With quick pickup and drop-off at more than 2,500 locations across North America, our scale and know-how will keep you covered, all helping to ensure you get the right, reliable, fuel-efficient vehicle when and where you need it. On the highways, the raceways, and every pit stop in between, Penske keeps you moving forward. Gain ground with Penske. Get a quote today at PenskeTruckRental.com or... For household rentals, download the Penske Truck Rental mobile app today. Hey, everybody. This is Joseph Newgarden, winner of the 107th Indianapolis 500, and you're listening to Pit Pass Indy, presented by Penske Truck Rental. Welcome back to Pit Pass Indy. Here's the rest of my exclusive interview with John Boslog of Team Penske, as we remember 2003 Indianapolis 500 winner and back-to-back kart champion Gilles DeFerrin on Pit Pass Indy. (laughs) 
So Team Penske failed to bank the field at the Indy 500 in 1995, one year after they dominated the race with the Mercedes-Benz 209 pushrod engine, with Ellinger Jr. winning the race in 1994. Then there was the split, where Team Penske was away from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the Indy 500. But in 2001, the team returned with Gilles DeFerrin and Elio Castroneves, and I know that you were in charge of that project to get back to the Indy 500. And what were those days like, and how much of a sense of adventure was there in returning to the Indianapolis 500 after being gone for as long as the team was? Well, well, there was that we had a lot, you know, we, we had a lot of unfinished business. We felt like, um, you know, we, we know how near and dear Indianapolis is to, to Roger. So, you know, we were going to do everything we could to try and get back to, you know, the victory there. Um, very satisfying for me personally being, being, you know, where I was at that time. Um, but yeah, Elio and, you know, that had, we had just great, you know, the cart teams were basically doing the 500, our teams, you know, with, uh, you know, Rick Reinemann was the chief on the, on Elio's car and, and Matt Johnson on DeFerrin's car and their pit crews were outstanding. So we really needed to just, you know, make sure we were reliable and, and, and execute the day, you know, strategies were good between Roger and Tim and it worked out three years in a row. So, you know, to come back and win three years in a row after, you know, what happened in 95, I think for everybody is, it was, you know, I, I think everybody's going to remember that as long as they live. But one thing that doesn't get pointed out enough is Team Penske already had a spectacular history in the Indianapolis 500 up to 2001. But with Elio Castroneves winning the race that year and Jill DeFerrin finishing second, it was the first time in Team Penske history that the team had swept the top two positions in the Indianapolis 500. And when you look back at that type of accomplishment, and it was really took that long for the team to be able to get a 1-2 finish, that's not something that really happens at all at the Indianapolis 500. No, and that's, you know, that's the beauty of it is it, 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 it gives and it takes and it can be very brutal and it can be very rewarding. Um, so yeah, that's just it. Fortunately for us, we were, we, you know, we were able to go back and, and, uh, sort of continue the success of the team. And now we're sitting at 19, 500 wins, which is, you know, which is huge. And, and, you know, we never approach it day to day that it's, 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 it's going to come easy because it, very hard, you know, to win that race. In 2001, the team won the Indianapolis 500, but returned to the kart series after that race. But in 2002, the decision was made to leave kart and join the Indy Racing League, as it was known at that time, full time. And you were really taking two road course and street course drivers in Gilda Farron and Elio Castroneves and bringing them to an all oval series at that time. How big a challenge was that? Well, I think they, you know, they're all oval series for them. I mean, they, you know, they, I'm sure they missed their road courses. Um, you know, that's how they grew up, right. The road course racing and, and I know they missed it, um, uh, but it was what we were doing. And, uh, I think, you know, they, they adapted to it very well. Um, you know, they had a lot of, a lot of wins within 
you know, those years. You were very familiar with the guys you were racing against in kart, but in the Indy Racing League, there was some people you probably knew coming up through the ranks, but there was a lot of unfamiliarity with some of the teams, some of the drivers. So that had to be a little bit of a challenge. And also, let's be fair, Team Penske comes over to the Indy Racing League. You guys had targets on your back the whole season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, sure, you know, we, uh, you know, people I'm sure wanted to, well, they wanted to win just like we did, you know, and uh, at the time, Sam Hornish was, he was the guy, right? Wasn't he, he, he was the, he was the guy that um, was the star, I guess you might say, right? Jill and Elio really met the challenge and there was... I remember two really great points championships, three actually that both of your drivers were involved in. And in a lot of ways, they adapted to that series quite quickly. That was really a key step toward bringing both sides back together eventually. Drivers like Jill DeFerrin really helped bring IndyCar back together, even though it was five years later before there was unification. Yeah, I mean, you know, an all oval, you know, the whole oval series thing, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't new to them, right? Because we had ovals, cart had ovals, you know, different, you know, super speedways and short ovals and stuff. So it, it was probably more getting used to the car, you know, the new car, the different car than it, you know, than the actual oval racing itself. Um, and the packs, you know, a lot of pack racing, that kind of thing. So that, you know, I'm sure there were some challenges, in 2002 at the Indianapolis 500, Jill is being set up to basically be in a position to win the Indianapolis 500. He had already led 13 laps in the race. It's getting into go time. The last 20 laps or so of the race, last pit stop, he comes in, Jill leaves, a wheel comes off, an uncharacteristic mistake. But how big a disappointment was that? Because I'm sure that a lot of people look back at that race and think that that was Jill DeFerrin's victory that he could have won in 2002. Yeah, obviously, um, very disappointing, surely for, for everybody. But, you know, those, and that's what, you know, that's what's so great about Jill is that, you know, he, that happened, he had, could have, you know, been the Indy 500, you know, maybe something else would have happened that day, you know, later on, but, you know, he wasn't the kind of guy that was going to come back and, and start, you know, getting down on people for whatever, you know, if it was a mistake or whatever, he, he's, he wasn't that guy. That's the, you know, that's what he was all about is, is, you know, pretty much staying positive and, you know, he, he he was never that guy, which was, you know, always a pleasure to be around, you know. So Jill finishes third in the championship in 2002 when you guys were full-time in the Indy Racing League. He finishes third in the championship. Elio Castroneves wins the Indy 500 back-to-back years, 2001-2002. Finally, at the 2003 Indianapolis 500, it's Jill DeFerrin who wins the race defeating Elio Castroneves for another 1-2 Team Penske finish. And I really remember how special that victory really hit him because he was very emotional afterwards. You were the rear tire changer on his car that day. And how dramatic of a victory was that? And how special was it to see Gilles DeFerrin get this crowning achievement of his racing career? Yeah, I mean, any time you can be involved in, in, you know, an indie win is, 
is hugely special. And when you see that emotion out of those guys, you know, it's a, it's a career. It, it, it's their career coming out in their reaction. You know what I mean? They've, they've, they've done, you know, what they set out to do in their career. He was a twice champion and then a, an Indy 500 winner, you know, everybody wants to do it. Um, and he was able to do it. And that emotion just, you know, it's like Will's, Will's reaction in 2018, you know, it was just, you know, they, 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 I don't even think they can help themselves. It just comes out, you know. At the end of the 2003 Indy Racing League Championship, Jill finishes second in the championship race to young Scott Dixon, the first of his current six NTT IndyCar Series championships. But there was some big news just a few days after the season ended when Jill announced that he was retiring from IndyCar. The team went out and hired Sam Hornish Jr., and even though Jill wasn't part of the actual racers on the racetrack, he remained a very strong presence at Team Penske. How shocked were you in some ways that he left after really uh, such a brief career as a race driver in IndyCar? His decision to do that was his own, right? He obviously thought about it a long time, I'm sure, with his family. And, and you know, he accomplished what he wanted to accomplish to that point. You know, he moved, he went on to do other things. You know, he was part of, you know, helping us as well. Um, so, yeah, he, it is shocking, but, you know, he, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't really a surprise, I guess, just because, you know, he's, he's a great family, you know, Angela and, and the kids. So he, he probably wanted to just, you know, it, it was his time. And he, he always said that, you know, he'd do it when he was ready. And he did. So it was his time, but it also, he remained in racing. He was an ALMS for a while. You two probably worked together a little bit on the Lusso Dragon uh, racing team that participated right. in the 2007 Indianapolis 500, which he was part of that program along with Jay Penske. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the fact that he remained in racing, uh, he was part of the Bar Honda Formula One effort for a while. He mm -hmm. uh, eventually was a key member at Honda Performance Development and then he also was part of McLaren in 2019. It seemed like Gilles was able to take his engineering expertise to many different areas after his racing career was over. And how impressed were you by the fact that he was able to be so multifaceted in auto racing? Well, yeah, he's, he, he was an impressive guy. I mean, you know, and he, he was always approachable. You know, it didn't matter, you know, what position you held at the team, you know, I know I've had conversations with him about, you know, my path throughout the, you know, throughout my career. And, you know, he's helped me see things and, and help me guide me, mentor me, you know, um, he was always there for everybody. And, and I think, you know, his, he never, he never stopped contributing. Um, now, did he want to stop racing? You know, his reasons for, for stopping. And then he got, I don't know, he, he got into ownership, right. Then he hit some team ownership with Acura and that kind of thing. Right. Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, he had, you know, he probably had a list of things that he wanted to do in his career. And, you know, that's, um, and he did it. He accomplished 
a lot. And the fact that he was a two-time champion as a race driver, you'd have to multiply that probably by 100 in the terms of what he was like as a human being. And, you know, as we've mentioned earlier, it's hard to find a more likable, more admirable character in an individual than what we found in Jill DeFerrin. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, back to back to the last race, the Texas race of 2003, he did finish second in the championship, but he, he won that race, you know, and that was a final race for him in IndyCar. And, but you remember there was a horrific crash with Kenny Brack and at the, you know, it was like 14 to go or something. And, you know, the, the kind of guy he was, he, he was really just wanting to know if Kenny was okay. Right. And the whole time the laps are winding down, you know, he's wanting to know how Kenny is. And, you know, even in victory lane, the, the body language of him, it wasn't, it wasn't about the victory. You know, we were pushing the car to victory lane and he was just, he was just having a moment, but he was really concerned about Kenny. And that's how he was, you know, he respected everybody, um, you know, on and off the track. So that, you know, that, that just said a lot to me. And also he was very proud of his family, his wife, Angela and his children. They were always seemed to be together. You'd see him every year at the Indianapolis 500 and other races throughout the season. And, you know, it's really got to be tough on them. And I'm sure that everybody that's been part of the team Penske family remains just that part of the family. Yeah, Angela was equally supportive, you know, with with the team coming around all the time. And she's, you know, just so, just a, a huge part of, of us as well. You know, when, when they were together at the track, you know, she she was always kind to everybody. And, uh, you know, we love her dearly for that. And the kids, obviously the kids are around too. And we watched them grow up and they're doing their things now. And. Yeah, you know, our, our just our hearts go out to them. Really, and it, they had a great, they had a great, and have a great dad. He's uh, he's an amazing guy, and and we're gonna miss him a ton. Well, I couldn't think of a better way to end the interview than with that. Uh, he touched a lot of people's lives, and it's unfortunate that this is the topic of today's interview. But we felt that it was very important that the people remember Gilles Deferrin as the champion of as a man that he really was. John Boslog, Special Projects Manager at Team Penske. From all of us at Pit Pass Indy, our condolences on the loss of Jill DeFerrin, and thank you for joining us today to remember a great driver and an even greater man. Thank you, Bruce. We'll be right back to Pit Pass Indy after this short break. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. 
This is Willpower of Team Penske, and you're listening to Pit Pass Indy, presented by Penske Truck Rental. Welcome back to this edition of Pit Pass Indy. Cale Yarborough was the epitome of what a stock car racer was all about. There may not have been a tougher man in the history of NASCAR than Yarborough, the man from Sardis, South Carolina. He was the oldest of three sons of Julian Yarborough, a tobacco farmer, and his wife, Annie. Although he was short in height, pound for pound and inch for inch, he was a giant behind the wheel of a stock car. Yarborough could manhandle a race car around some of the most difficult tracks on the schedule, seemingly able to carry the car on his shoulders to victory. Yarborough was a high school football star in Timmonsville, South Carolina, and was offered a scholarship to play college football at Clemson University by head coach Frank Howard. But he turned it down. Instead, Yarborough played four seasons of semi-pro football in Columbia, South Carolina, and was a Golden Gloves boxer. Yarborough made his NASCAR debut in the 1957 Southern 500 in nearby Darlington, South Carolina. He didn't have a full-time ride until 1965 when he competed in 46 of the 55 races on the schedule that year, picking up his first career win at Valdosta Speedway in Georgia. By 1967, Yarborough had earned himself the prestigious number 21 Ford ride for the Wood Brothers. He drove to victory at Atlanta in the July 4th race at Daytona that year. In 1968, Yarborough won the pole for the Daytona 500. He led 76 laps for the first of his four Daytona 500 wins. He also won the Daytona 500 in 1977 for team owner Junior Johnson, 1983 and 1984 for team owner Harry Rainier. Yarborough had nine wins at Daytona International Speedway. He also won the Southern 500 at Darlington Raceway five times. He was the first driver to win three straight NASCAR Cup Series championships from 1976 to 78, driving the Holly Farms chicken Chevrolet for Junior Johnson. But Yarborough was more than one of NASCAR's greatest drivers. Yarborough made his first Indianapolis 500 start in 1966, driving for Rolla Volstead. Yarborough was caught off guard by the throngs who attended qualifying days in May at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and got stuck in traffic en route to the track for the first qualification day. He ended up parking his car in the yard of a local resident and walking to the track, qualifying 24th in the number 66 Jim Robbins Volstead Ford. But his four-lap qualification run that year lasted longer than his race. Yarborough's car was one of 11 collected and eliminated in a first-lap accident that triggered a red-flag delay of nearly 90 minutes, and he was credited with a 28th-place finish. Yarborough returned with Volstead's team in 1967 and finished 17th, completing 176 laps. He made his final two Indianapolis 500 starts in 1971 and 1972 with Gene White's team, completing 193 laps and finishing 10th in 1972, both career best, and a colorful team that also boasted fellow kindred jovial spirits Lloyd Ruby and Sam Sessions. In 1971, Yarborough raced the entire USAC Championship Trail with White's team. 
He produced a best finish of fifth at Trenton and Michigan and ended up 16th in the standings in his only full open-wheel season. Yarbrough retired as a driver after the 1988 NASCAR Cup Series season and then focused on team ownership and other businesses. His Cale Yarbrough Motorsports team raced in the Cup Series through the 1999 season, with John Andretti delivering the team its sole victory in the 1997 Pepsi 400 at Daytona. Yarbrough became a highly successful businessman in the Florence, South Carolina area, owning several 60-minute dry cleaning stores, Hardy's franchises, and an automobile dealership, Cale Yarbrough Honda. One of the most recognized drivers of his era, Yarbrough even appeared in a starring role on The Dukes of Hazard on CBS. We'll be right back to Pit Pass Indy after this short break. Hi, I'm Scott McLaughlin, driver of the number three Team Penske Chevy, and you're listening to Pit Pass Indy, presented by Penske Truck Rental. And that puts a checkered flag on this edition of Pit Pass Indy. We want to thank our guest, Team Penske Special Projects Manager John Boslog, for helping us remember the great Jill DeFerrin on today's podcast. Along with loyal listeners like you, our guests help make Pit Pass Indy your path to victory lane in IndyCar. And because of our guests and listeners, Pit Pass Indy is proud to be the winner of the best podcast by the National Motorsports Press Association. For more IndyCar coverage, follow me at Twitter at Bruce Martin, one word, uppercase B, uppercase M, underscore 500. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thanks to our production team. Executive producers are Bridget Coyne and Gerardo Orlando. Recordings and edits were done by me, Bruce Martin. And final mixing was done by Dave Douglas. Learn more at evergreenpodcast.com. Until next time, be sure to keep it out of the wall.